Hello, and welcome to a special Hope podcast. I'm your host, Sarah Brody, and today I'd like to welcome to the show my friend, Jason Haig. Jason lives in Junction City, Oregon, where he serves as the associate pastor for Christ Center Church and chief storyteller for his wife and five children. He writes and speaks regularly on the intersection of faith, fatherhood, and autism, and he chronicles his own journey using prose, poetry, and video at jasonhaig.com. And today, other than discussing the type of vehicle Jason wanted to be when he grew up, stay tuned at the end for that fun conversation, we'll be discussing Jason's book, Aching Joy, Being Transparent, Choosing Joy, Embracing Pain, and Especially Finding Hope. So, Jason, welcome to A Special Hope. Thank you, Sarah, for having me. Absolutely. We met at Inclusion Fusion Live last April. That was, what year was that? Was 2018. That, was it 2018? It feels like it was yeah. before then. It was. I guess it just was 2018, wasn't it? No, yeah, it was last year. Yep. It was last year. Gosh, time. So, yeah, we met at Inclusion Fusion Live, and you were on a dad's panel. And Sarah was on the mom's panel with me. And the mom's panel was a lot of fun because it was Sandra as the host and then three Sarahs. And your Sarah screwed it all up for us because she doesn't have an H in her name. She's very snobby about not having the H as well. (laughs) That really messed things up. Whenever we would try to write the three Sarahs, we'd have to put the H in parentheses. It was really annoying. (laughs) (laughs) The three Sarah parentheses, you know. That was a lot of fun. And then, but we really got to know each other, really got to know each other. I feel like, I feel like there are, there are people you can really get to know within a two hour time block at the Cheesecake Factory at 10 PM. I really think that that's possible because we did. And so you and Sarah and I, and the whole inclusion fusion gang, we are out to eat. Of course, you know, you can only have so much conversation at our end of the table. Um, so we got to know each other a little bit better. And you're telling me about a book that you're coming out with. And I pre-ordered it at the table. I don't know if you knew that. But oh, I, did. I think you might have told me that. I forgot about that. Well, I wow, did. That's, that's I pre-ordered cool. the book at the table um, because I was so excited about it. And it's come out and I have read it and it's incredible. And we'll get to the book in a little bit. So that's how we met. Tell me first about being a storyteller for your wife and five children. Well, we're a story family. Um, we, since my daughters were very young, we would read the Narnia stories or, um, you know, listen to the audio. By the way, have you ever heard the Focus on the Family audio drama version of Narnia? Uh, my son used to listen to it. I did not. It's so good. Okay. Yes. It's, anyway, sorry. It's so good. So listeners out there, you need to check it out. It's, it's outstanding. The BBC worked with them on it. Uh, anyway, we were big fans of Narnia, and we we just loved uh, the use of the imagination. And so we started telling our own stories and making up our own little worlds. And, and we've been doing that um, for a long time. And now my daughter Emily is writing stories of her own. She's working on a couple of novels. Um, my son Sam is trying to work on his first novel, and he's ten. You know, so it's uh, it's been a lot of fun. We we just we love stories. We love doing read aloud books, and uh, it's one of our favorite things. And stories are powerful things. They are. I can't even put into words how just how impactful stories are. You know, and that's one of the reasons for this podcast is because when we tell our stories, it empowers other people. It it helps them find their own story and our story, you know, and it gives them strength where they didn't have it before, gives them hope where they couldn't see any. You tell a story in your book about you're coming up with superpowers for your kids. And yeah. uh, so tell me a little bit about how you come up with the superpowers for each of your kids. The boys mainly is what I'm thinking of. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We, uh, my boys love superhero stories, like like all boys, and um, so and they love to be in our bedtime stories. You know, we would, you know, sometimes talk about different characters, but they loved it when they were about them. So uh, we made up the Super Brothers. I have, and I have three sons. So um, Jack is is the oldest. And at the time, he was about nine. Um, Jack has severe autism. He's kind of the subject of my uh, of my book. And then Sam was three years younger than him. So he's six. And Nathan was probably about three. And so uh, we're deciding what are the superpowers? 
and we start with Sam. And so here's, here's what I say in my book, like in dealing out superpowers, the idea is take a thing that a kid already has and then just exaggerate it, just push it to 11, you know? Right. So with Sam, he's like, he's like the strong one and he, you know, he takes care of people. So, so we like, well, he needs to have super strength then. He needs to be the one who's sort of the leader and takes care of the brothers. Cause you know, that's just the way he is. And, and Nathan is, he's, he's kind of a brute. Um, but he also thinks <laughs> he's hilarious. He, he is hilarious. I have to, he's one of those kids that was super hard to punish. He would get so angry. <laughs> he used to be our angry kid and he was so hard to punish because he was hilarious when he was mad and you just had to turn your head. And... So we're like, we have to give him something funny. And, and so, uh, we gave him uh, tackle power. Um, so his, uh, he could tackle anyone or anything. He's tackling inanimate objects all the time. So that was him. And, uh, <laughs> and then Sam asked the question, he said, dad, what's Jack's superpower? It was kind of a heavy question. I've been, I've been avoiding it because Jack is uh, nonverbal. He's, he's minimally verbal with us, but functionally he's nonverbal. At that time he wasn't really saying anything. And so that was a real question of like, well, I don't even know if he understands the stories we tell. And should I give him the power? Should I, should I have him talking in the stories or would that somehow change him, you know, or, you know, show that we're trying to fix him or whatever. Like it was just this weird question of like, I don't know whether to give him speech in these stories. So, and you have to figure this out right now too. You know, you have to come up with this answer right now. Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I was sort of right on the spot, right? Um, so I, I decided, okay, he's going to talk because otherwise it's going to be super hard to tell the stories. And so he's going to talk. And what I'm going to do is give him flapping power, because Jack, his wow. his stem, the way that the way he regulates his own, you know, emotions and all that is by flapping. Usually socks, sometimes lanyards, two uh, identical objects, and just flapping them all over the place. So. We made that a superpower. Um, and so when he points them at the ground, it lifts them off the ground and he can fly and, and he can point them at enemies as they come by and he, you know, strikes up this huge wind and it knocks them back. And so, um, they were all very excited. The two younger brothers were like flapping power. That's awesome. You can fly. Oh my gosh. So, um, <laughs> that's awesome. So we just told one last night, actually. I did a met. You'll appreciate this. Last night I said, let's tell a story that Jack would want to hear. And Sam says, Hey, Dad, we should we should put Poe and the Furious Five in this story because Jack's new movie obsession is Kung Fu Panda Two, or it's been that way for like the last uh-huh. six months. Uh-huh. So we had him uh, saving the life of of Poe. He started laughing hysterically as he listened to that story. So I think he uh, I think he appreciated <laughs> it. I think he liked that. So tell me more about the irony of the title of your book, Aching Joy. And you know, I had your book on my coffee table one day and I had a friend over and we were just sitting together in the living room talking and I wasn't talking about the book or anything. It just happened to be there and her eye caught it and she picked it up and, and I said, Oh, that's, that's a book by, by one of my new friends. You know, we were at the conference together. I'm like, it's so good. I'm loving it so much. And, and she said, Oh yeah, that's really cool. She's like, I'm just really intrigued by the title because it says aching joy. And that makes no sense to me whatsoever. And I said, you're just going to have to read the book. So tell us about the title of your book. (laughs) You know, it's funny. Um, I've had so many people get it immediately. And, and the ones who do are, are special needs parents, (laughs) like almost every like special needs parent that sees the title, like, Oh, "Oh, I totally get it right away. (laughs) I get it. I totally got it. Yeah, when you, you told do. me the name of your book was Aching Joy, I was like, oh, that's beautiful. Yes. <laughs> so the title came from a poem I wrote um, in a video. I, um, I had a video in, in 2016 that I put out called A Reflection of Aching Joy. It was a poem to my son at the beach. I'm, I'm talking about all the mysteries that he represents and and uh, things I'd, I'd want to understand. And it, I ended it as you're a piece of God's own daydreams, a reflection of aching joy. I, those, just those two things are, are so present in our lives. But I think, I, I don't know, I, it started out as like, I think this is in God's eyes too. Like he hurts when we hurt, right? but he's so joyful at who we are. And that is, that's so been my experience with my son, because there's been a lot of aching, especially early on. I mean, there was so much pain and so much to work through, but, but he brings so much joy. And, uh, it, you know, for a long time, I sort of treated life as if like, well, I have to lower all my level of expectation. I have to lower 
anything that I think is going to be good, it's not really going to be good because I'm always going to have this pain. Almost like you have to you have to do away with with pain before you can have joy. And what I've realized right. is that's totally wrong. I think uh, these these two things are not mutually exclusive. That there's joy to be had in any difficult situation in like in the midst of it not you don't have to wait until it's over but there's joy you can have like right now um so that 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 title is just sort of summed up my my experience as a you know parenting my son that i want so much more for him i want him to be able uh to experience all life has for him and to say all the things that are locked inside of him and the fact that he can't it makes me ache but to see his smile and his face and his happiness and all these things it gives me so much joy right and there's just this constant tension when we're raising our kids you know we love them so very much but we hurt for them too and we hurt for we hurt for the things that will never be or that yeah. will most likely never be and you talk a lot about that, the the projector screen, you know, and the, the projector's yeah. running and the film is going and you see your kid and yourself playing football in the backyard and doing all these different things. And as he continues to grow and continues to not speak and continues to fall further behind or regress and lose the language skills he finally learned, that projector screen, there's a crack in it, you know, and it just, it keeps playing, but it's... It's like it's it's never going to happen, you know. Tell us about tell us about that that projector screen. Yeah, the projector was uh, for me a, a, a metaphor for our expectations, mm-hmm. and uh, I saw like the expectations we come in to a situation like parenting. Like we we've already, whether we realize it or not, been watching these videos in our mind that are like propaganda films um in our mind. Like we we just see this is the way it's gonna be. It's gonna be like this and it's gonna be great and all you know, all these things. So for me, the football thing was part of that. The theology thing was part of that. Even the Narnia read alouds is part of like all these things. Cause I already had two daughters and I loved them and I was so excited to now bring a boy into into the family and share our family culture in these cool ways that fathers do with sons. And, and when that diagnosis came and, and when he started regressing and losing his language and all of these things, I had to deal with the fact that those images had lied to me. Mm-hmm. And then where do you go at, at that point? What do you do? And that was a right. real struggle for me of recalibrating expectations. Do I, do I throw the whole thing out? Do I smash the projector with a baseball bat? Do I, you know, how do we, how do right. we move on? Where, where do we go from here emotionally? And that was a, that was a big part of my journey. Right. And yeah. How are we supposed to find a new normal? Because we don't have a picture yeah. for what that's supposed to look like. We have no idea what's coming. We don't know what to expect now. We had expectations we had set up for ourselves, but then when a diagnosis comes now you're going, I don't, I don't know what that looks like, except for what I've seen in right. movies. And we all know, right. we all know the answers that we get from that, you know, and we don't know what to expect now. He's going to be just like, he's going to be just like Rain Man. <sighs> I swear. <laughs> Rain Man. <laughs> yeah. Rain Man. And, and yes, he, he, I mean, Sam has incredible memory. He has incredible gifts that I think he has because of his autism, but you know, yeah, we just can't. And that, but that's all we knew. And that's all the people around us, even still, even here in 2019, that's still mostly what a lot of people think of is, is Rain Man. There's, you know, luckily there's some more things coming out, but they're not always the best things. In any case, there's at least more awareness now than there used to be, but we're still having those same, those same struggles. You know, you know, we don't have, we don't have expectations. I don't know what that's going to look like. And I remember, my mom got me a book not long after Sam was diagnosed, and it was called Finding Your Child's Way on the Autism Spectrum. And uh, and it, it's a good book. It's a great book. I highly recommend the book. Probably not for when you're first, you know, working through a diagnosis because you need to work through your own grief and that kind of thing first. Um, because in the book, her kid is severely autistic. He has no language. He has nothing. She quit. You know, she was a single mom. She quit her job. She became his ABA therapist. She got her own certification. She did his own ABA therapy, you know, 40 hours a week. And he went on to become the valedictorian of his class and highly successful in life and verbal and successful and popular and everything. You know, all the dreams that you have for your kid, you know, her kid got it. 
And I just remember reading that book going, I don't know if that means that this is going to happen for my kid. Because as we all know, if you meet one kid with autism, you've met one kid with autism. And we just we just don't know, you know, just because my kid has been through therapy and has progressed with it doesn't mean that other kids who go through the same therapy are going to have the same success. And they don't. Some do and some don't. And so you can't, there's nothing that says, if you follow this, this is going to happen. And so our expectations just get shattered. And then we have no idea how to rebuild. You know, okay, well, now we have to find a new normal. What in the world does that mean? I don't even know how to find a new normal because I don't know, now I don't know what to expect. And if you have no expectations, then you set yourself up for even more failure because now Maybe you don't think it's worthy enough to pursue therapy or maybe, you know, whatever. There's so many different things. But, you know, how do we how do we move on past that? You know, Sarah, I think what you're saying is so true. And it makes me think of, you know, the other cliche that is, is always thrown around, like autism is like an unplanned trip to Holland. Mm, yeah, um, I remember that one. You know, uh, like you planning to go to Italy, but now you're in Holland and you weren't expecting, you know, it's different than you thought it would be, but Holland's really great too. Well, for me, it was like, it wasn't like I was at this new destination um, with windmills and tulips. It was like I was stuck in an airport and I had no idea where I was, couldn't speak the language. Right. Like it was, I think this is why people get afraid um, when they're in unfamiliar environments, you know, like if, when you are stuck in a place, you're like, oh my goodness, I, I, I don't, I don't know what anything means. I can't read the signs. What am I supposed to do? Where am I supposed to go? Um, who am I supposed to call? All of those things. Uh, this is why, you know, it's so easy to get caught in fear in, you know, after a diagnosis, because everyone seems to know what they're doing, even though they don't. Um, Everyone seems to understand it, even though they don't. And people are pressuring you to go this way or get this kind of therapy. ABA is the thing. No, ABA is evil. Um, you know, everybody has these really strong opinions and it can be terrifying. You you, you end up in a place of like, mm -hmm. wow, it, it all seemed pretty straightforward and now nothing is straightforward and I don't know what to do. So yeah, a, a right. diagnosis, man, it, it, can, it can really rock people's worlds. It's paralyzing is what it is. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. it's just the it's terrifying and the fear leads to just total paralysis and you don't know what to do. So so you do nothing. And in the meantime, you've got to deal with a kid who's banging his head against the wall, you know, and you're just going, I, I have no idea, you know, and it um, it it took other people speaking truth into our life to guide me in the right direction. Right. And, you know, we, we need people in our lives. But. If we don't have people in our lives who are saying, here's a direction, let me walk with you in it, you know, how do, how do we get from there? And I think that, that the paralysis, you know, it, we're, we're scared, there's fear, it leads to paralysis, we can't move, we can't make decisions, we can't seem to find a way forward. And then that leaves us in a place where we're just plain angry now, because we don't know what to do, we don't know how to do it, and why in the world are we even here to begin with? This isn't fair. And now, now I'm angry and we're disappointed because things did not work out the way they were supposed to, right? We were supposed to go to Holland. That was the plan. That was the itinerary. And now we're not there. And so now we're disappointed. And in your book, you talk about the freedom that's found in being transparent and real when we're disappointed by God's plan for our lives or when our prayers go unanswered. A big theme in your book is the land of unanswered prayer. You know, we're living in this land of unanswered prayer. So what does that look like? Why is it important to be transparent about how we feel in the midst of those times? Well, uh, transparency, I think, is important on, on a few levels. Um, we have to be honest with ourselves with what's happening. Uh, we have to be honest with God with what's happening. And then we have to let other people in and let them know what's actually going on in our hearts. Um, you know, authenticity is kind of a buzzword today, culturally. And uh, so I kind of hate mm -hmm. that. Um, I hate to use that, but it really is so important. But I think it's important for those of us who are hurting, because if we don't get authentic and real, if we don't get honest about what's going on inside of ourselves, we're never going to get past it. We're not going to get through it. We're not going to see hope. Um, and in our case, in our, in our situation, 
we're not going to be able to be the kind of parent that our kid needs. Right. So if, if we're stuck in, you know, inside of ourselves with all of this pain, with all of this anger and hurt and confusion and all of these things, which are so natural, and we can't really even do anything about that. Like emotions don't cooperate. They don't just, they're not even always logical. Right. So sometimes you can have this flood, this flood of emotions come in not know what to do about that. And if, but so if we, if we ignore that, if we try to shove those down and pretend that everything's just fine, we're not actually going to be able to reach a place of genuine joy or genuine acceptance and hope and all of these things that we talk about, these great ideals, um, you know, acceptance is a, is a, is right. a, everybody wants to reach acceptance. And, and that means different things to different people. But if we can't get in a place where we love our children uh, for who they are right now, right now and in, in all the difficulty and in, in the hard times, if we can't get to that place, then what are we even doing? So we have to, to, to deal with things that they, as they actually are, because that's the first step toward healing. You know, if you're going to walk into a hospital right. and something's hurting internally, they're going to say, where does it hurt? What's going on? And you're not being honest and authentic just so that you can, you know, <laughs> be trendy or feel good about yourself. You're being honest and authentic <laughs> so that you can get face. Yes, exactly. You're not you're not trying to do that. The, the reason you tell a doctor is so that you can actually find healing. And I I advocate transparency as a first step toward healing. Mm. And what does transparency look like? Well, I think it. You know it. it like I say, there's different levels to that. One of those, uh, you know, it starts internally. It, once we know what's going on in our hearts, that means we've put away distraction enough so that we can actually know what we're feeling. I think then we take that to God. You know, people are at different places, obviously, and in, in how they think of God and how they think of spirituality. But in my journey, it meant praying. It meant being very, very honest in how angry I was with God, mm. um, which is something that makes people in the church squeamish. I'm not sure that other people struggle with that kind of thing as much as, as a lot of church people. You know, I grew up in a, you know, a place where it's like, you know, you feel a little more straight laced. Like there are things you're not allowed to say to God almost. But for me, I I, right. I found it was important to go and, and in my prayers to be able to say, God, here's what's actually going on inside me. I know you can see it already. So I'm just going to throw it out there and be honest. I am furious with you. I am so upset that you haven't come through. I'm so upset that my, my son was speaking and now he's not speaking. I'm so upset that my other son has his heart condition. I'm so upset with all of these things right now. And it came out ugly and it came out with with cussing and it came out with all kinds of stuff. Um, but I, I found that that was actually, I think, the most healthy thing I could do. Uh, to be able to come as you really are is so important. Um, and I, th I think uh, uh, that's what God wants from us. And I know that's what we need from other people as well. Right. If you, can, if you have to come as somebody else, um, that's not relationship. But when you come as you really are in all of your messiness and say, I need help, I need strength because I'm weak, that's where we get strength. So until we can actually get honest about those broken places inside of us, it's a long and very lonely walk. And it's very heavy. It's too big for us. Right. And it's a painful place to be. And what you're talking about is embracing the pain. Yes. You know, not just embracing it, first acknowledging that it even exists. Yes. You know, because we can feel it, but we can just shove it down and we do the dishes because the dishes need to be done. And we do the laundry because the laundry needs to be done. And we take the kids to therapy because that needs to be done. And we just, we're, we put ourselves in survival mode and we push all the emotions down. And what ends up happening is it's like a volcano. It, it erupts. And when it erupts, it's nasty and it's terrible and it's ugly and it hurts and it's painful. Yeah. And so we have to acknowledge that there's pain in what we're doing, you know, in what we're experiencing. There's pain in what we're experiencing. And in your book, you talk about how American Christians are often inept at dealing with pain. And you talk about we should embrace pain and why we can't just simply choose joy. So first, why do you think that Christians are just kind of inept? You know, why are we just so bad at dealing with pain? Yeah, I, I say Western Christians because I'm, I, I don't think this is as much of an issue in in a lot of other places. But see, we have TV commercials, and TV commercials they lie to us. They tell us, "Oh man, if you get this toothpaste, man, like you will, 
your wife will want to kiss you hard, you know, like that kind of thing. <laughs> like, you, know, <laughs> you wear this cologne, man, you know, all of these things, um, you, you know, you, you have this sweater, you're going to have better friends. Um, we, we have this sort of backdrop of like, of expectations that are very, very promising. Um, and we think that life is going to be easy and then it's going to be full of goodness. If you can, you know, whatever it's, it, it'll come to you. And we end up ignoring what scripture actually tells us, which is in this world, you have trouble, but take heart. This is what Jesus said. Take heart. I have overcome the world. Um, so we have this weird thing of the, this whole like Western materialistic, um, you get the right things, you're, you're going to find happiness thing. And we mix it with, with Christianity, which actually has a very earthy, gritty, component of like life is hard man life is hard and you need god and you need others and all these things so i think it's it's honestly it's a uh, it's a consequence of where we live and the time that we live and i think we've got to get back to getting rid of all of these illusions that mm. you know just because you're a christian that everything's going to be hunky-dory it's just not true right and why is it that we simply can't just choose joy. You know, people, people that I've talked to, you know, you're just trying to lament, you're trying to be real, you're trying to be honest and transparent. You want to hurt and you want others to hurt with you, which is also biblical. And instead, they're like, you know, listen, you just got to move past that. Choose joy. You know, I, you know, choose, choose, yeah, choose, yeah. choose to be happy, choose joy, find, find the good things. And while that's true, it's true that we can find joyous things in our children. We can find things that are joy-filled in our lives and in the lives of our, of our kids and the things that we're doing every single day. We can find joy. But when we're hurting like that, we can't just be like, oh, okay, I'll just choose joy. Like, like it's my, yeah, you know, my right. choice between a cookie or a brownie. I'll, I'll, I'll have this one. You know, it's right. just, it just doesn't work that yeah. way. Um, so can you help maybe shed some light on why that's just not even possible for us to do? Honestly, this, this isn't honest, always true, but honestly, I kind of think sometimes the people who are trying to push so hard on, on you for, for choosing joy, I, I think sometimes that happens for their benefit and, and not the one who's actually hurting mm. because you want to say if sometimes our pain can make other people feel uncomfortable. <laughs> right. Like, Hey, come on, look on the bright side. What's your problem? Like you're dragging me down here. Um, and right. uh, that it, it, it doesn't work. So from the perspective of the one who's trying to be encouraging, it doesn't work to tell a person how to feel. Even if it's the right conclusion, like you look at this, what's your problem? Why don't you feel this? It's like, well, that's not what they're feeling right now. And yes, joy, uh, there, it is true that joy is, is a choice in, in, on some level. But if you have all of this pain there, um, you say just choose joy. A lot of times what that means is to look on the bright side and ignore the dark side. Right. So, so and that could, it, it, for me, I couldn't do that because I'm like, look, you, if you want me to pretend for your sake, I can pretend. But I'm still really hurting and I'm still not happy with life or any of these things. So I, I can't ignore this. I don't know how. I can pretend to, but that's intellectually dishonest because I can say, yeah, everything's great. Oh, because, well, look at this. Like he said hi to me today. Isn't that wonderful? Like, yes, that's wonderful. But he was up for six hours in the middle of the night last night screaming. So it's not as good as you want it to be. So I don't, I, I don't think, you know, I don't advocate that, that we sit and just wallow. Um, I just think we need to be honest about where we're at and then be able to work through it. Right. Uh, honestly, we, uh, you know, we all want to end up in joy. Our kids want us there. It, that's the healthy place. That is the place where we want to be able to get to. But you can't just wish yourself there. And you certainly can't shame another person in, into into going there. Right. And I think that just points to, you know, another issue that, that we have in that we're not comfortable when someone else is hurting yes. and our tendency is to move them through it and move them past it. You know, something terrible has happened and our friend is hurting and they're crying and we're just sitting there like, it'll be okay. It, that's just, you know, we just keep repeating, it'll be okay. It'll be okay. Cause we're like, stop crying. I don't know what to do here. And I don't think that they're necessarily right. trying to, I just think they don't, they don't know what to do. And they want you to be okay. They yeah. want you to be happy. They they want you to smile and, and to laugh. And some people will try to do that, you know, above 
everything else. And, you know, a psychologist, I saw a video on Facebook that said, you know, some psychologist was studying some study that came out that said what people really need in their hurting moments are for other people to enter their pain. And I thought, well, you don't need a study to tell you yeah. that. I could have told you that, you know. Um, <laughs> so many of us are going, yeah, and, right. you know, we, we've known this for a very, very long time. It's what we've been preaching to people for a very long time. And, you know, so sometimes I'll, I'll try to take the pressure off of somebody. I'll say, you know, I, I know that this might feel uncomfortable for you, but I just need to cry. And I just want you to sit here next to me and you don't need to say anything. I'm going to take that pressure off of you right now. You don't need to say any words. As a matter of fact, it's probably best if you don't. So just sit here, just sit here with me, you know, just rub my back, sit here with me and just let me cry. And, and let that, let that just be all we're doing right now. But we really stink at entering pain with people. And we need to get better at, at doing that, at entering other people's pain. Yeah. And, you know, sometimes to me, the most helpful people are the ones who can just sit next to you and they don't have to say anything. Right. <laughs> right. We're part of the problem is we're so, un, we're so uncomfortable with silence that we don't know how to just sit with someone. Yeah. When you know, you don't know the answers, you don't have to come up with the answer. Right. Right. And you just, you know, I'll tell people, you don't have the answer to this. You're not going to find the answer on Google right now. So just don't, you know, just don't try. You know, yes. all you really need to say is, is I'm sorry. And just, just sit with me yes. and just hurt with me. And, you know, if you're that type of person, even you can cry with me. Just let me be, you know, let me, let me hurt right now. I need to hurt. And we need to learn how to let each other hurt, how to enter each other's pain. You know, Christ entered the right. suffering of his people. You know, that's why he is the high priest that he is, because he suffered just like we did. And right. that often gives people more comfort than knowing, you know, oh, he's the king of the world and, and all, you know, all the greatness and glory of God. But to know that he suffered just like me. That's what gets people's attention sometimes over the fact that he's the king of the world. Right. You talk in your book about the biblical Psalms of lament, and you encourage people to pray raw prayers, even if they're filled with anger. So talk to me about why is that necessary to pray raw prayers? What are, can you, and can you give us some examples of some of the Psalms of lament? Here's what I found is that the Psalms are full of these prayers, whether it be from David or somebody else, uh, crying out to God for help and sometimes saying, why haven't you saved me? You know, arise, O Lord, save me. My enemies are all about to strike my cheek. You know, many are saying there's no salvation in God, like almost like stand up and prove them wrong. And, and there is sometimes he gets downright like, Lord, why have you, where have you gone from me? You, you won't hear me. Or Psalm 22, which says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Which, of course, Jesus prayed on the cross. Right. So the, the entire book is just littered with these, uh, these deep groanings by people who, who loved God but did not understand what they were going through, didn't understand what he was doing or not doing, and didn't understand uh, uh, why. So instead of sanitizing those, I mean, like, well, Lord, I know that, you know, having a hundred disclaimers for, I know ultimately that you're a good God and you do all this for your glory and uh, for my help <laughs> right. and all these things. Like, he didn't do that. It yeah. was like, Lord, where are you? Like, why won't you come through? I think if you read the, the scriptures, you find the ones who are closest to God are the ones who prayed most boldly. Hmm. And I, I think the reason why that brings us closer. I, I think that brings us closer to God, just like being honest with one another brings us closer, you know, as friends and family is, is you're showing your real self here. And I, a lot of times I think it's like this. It's like, if you have an accusation against God um, that you, you don't, that you're not sharing, even though he already sees it. So that in itself is, is a side note, which is silly. He already mm -hmm. sees it. Right. If you're pretending it's not there, then there's something, there's something between you. There's something between you and God, there's, there is something stopping, you know, or hindering relationship because you refuse to say what's actually on your heart. Mm -hmm. um, so I think 
we not we need not be so squeamish. God is you know the creator of universe. He he, he spoke galaxies into existence. Like he is strong enough to take your anger. He he's not going to break. Um, and sometimes I think he's up there going, "Would you just please tell me that thing that you really want to say? Would you stop like couching your prayers in such cute little spiritual language? Mm. Um, just tell me what's on your heart. Tell me how you're hurting." I, I really think he's waiting for that because when we read, you know, remember the Psalms is the prayer book of Jesus himself. This is a, a, a model for how we're supposed to approach him. Right. So I think we need to stop approaching him as if he's like some porcelain deity. He's not. Let's come and bring it. And it, it will probably find that our accusations are off base and that's totally fine. They're off. He can, we'll, we'll, we'll worry about the specifics later, but for now, if we have something with him, if we have, you know, something that's hurting it's better just to come and tell him. Right. And and I get what you're saying. You know, we're not supposed to talk. We're not supposed to say certain things to the Lord. And we do need to be careful. I'll, I'll say that. We do need to be to be careful. And I believe that when we come to him, you know, truly seeking him and not our own selves, that, you know, he, he does respond and he does grant us those things. And, you know, sometimes it's it's through a friend or through a note or a doctor's call, or sometimes it's just a whisper in our heart that says, I'm with you. I am with you. And in your book, you talk about Emmanuel and that God is with us. And I love that, you know, that you bring that out. Um, Talk to me a little bit more about about what, I I can't remember what chapter it's in, um, but you talk about Emmanuel, God with us. Well, that was... uh... Uh, you know, the, the presence of God in the midst of hard times that, that ended up being his answer to a lot of those things that I had cried out to him about. Cause you know, for me, I didn't stay in a place of anger for, for me. It was, it was when I got those things out with God that he drew close and, and the, the anger really cooled. Actually, I, I just went into a season of sadness and his aunt, he didn't answer me. He didn't say, this is why, and it's all going to be better or, okay, I've heard your cry and now your son will speak. It wasn't anything like that. Right. Um, but the way he answered us was with 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 his presence, you know, and uh, we um, went through some some hard times, you know, um, I think of, you know, one season of, of self-injury that was exceptionally difficult. And um, when, when you pray, you just you're right. You don't always get the answers that you want. And so then how are you going to respond? And we just kind of leaned into his presence of like. Lord, you know, bring comfort to him and bring comfort to us. You know, the, 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 the fact of his presence and his promise to be with us always is, is, you know, to me, one of the most important themes in all of scripture. And, uh, you know, it's, it happens so many times of, you know, when you walk through the waters, I will be with you or, you know, God to Moses, I will be with you it's all the way through scripture. And then you have a manual means, God with us. And Jesus ascends in front of his disciples and says, I will be with you always, even until the end of the age. And I'm going to prepare a place for you that we can be together. It's all about him being with us. And so when I began to, to you know, put my hope in that, put my hope in the fact that, you know, not that all my circumstances are going to change, but that he's going to be with me in all things, just like I'm going to be with my son, Jack, in all things like it's it's the same thing, and and knowing that in in a deeper place uh, made all the difference. I think that being able to to tell yourself God is with me, He's here with me even now. Um, you know, we've been through the self injurious stages before. He was much younger, I think, than Jack was. Um, Sam was two and three, actually, not even two. It, it lasted for for a few years, actually, but up until he was you know, three, four years old, he would just randomly, he would just start banging his head against any hard surface. And the house that we lived in had all hardwood floors and the kitchen was tile floors. You know, there there was carpeting in one or two of the bedrooms, but we never happened to be in there when he was doing that. It was always, he'd run to the right. door or the wall or just on the floor. And, and I just, I didn't understand, you know, and I remember just having to pick him up and, and hold him and grabbing his, his hands like they showed me in ABA therapy and how to hold him and kind of pin him in so that he couldn't hurt himself. And a lot of times that meant that I got hurt because he would rear his head back and it would hit my chin. Yeah. And oh, oh, that. Right. And I remember this one session 
there was this one therapy session with uh, our ABA therapist and our speech therapist, and they did dual sessions. So they were both there at the same time, and he started to have a meltdown. And his meltdowns were very aggressive and, and self-injurious. And so you have to protect your child. You have to do something so that they can't hurt themselves, which often meant putting yourself in harm's way. Um, but you do what you have right. to do. And so they showed me he had to sit in my lap. And I, we were sitting on the floor in the middle of the basement, sitting on the floor. And he sat in my lap and I crisscrossed my legs, you know, around his in front of me. And then I held, you know, my left hand held his left hand. And my right hand held his right hand. And then I crossed my arms across his chest like a straight jacket. And I just had to sit there yeah. and hold him as tightly as I could. And you've met me. I'm not a large person. And I was even even smaller then, you know, um, I've gained a few now. But at the time, you know, I was I've got a pretty small frame and he was so strong and he was only two years old. And I'm hoping to, to hold him as tightly as I possibly can. And I'm just telling him, when you calm down, I will let go. And I had to say that, you know, every so often to remind him. And he was just, you know, and I could feel it in his body. He's just writhing back and forth. And I remember the tears just pouring out of my eyes. I remember taking hits to the chin, having to try to turn my head so that he didn't hit me because he would lean forward. And I thought, oh, good, he's relaxing. Then all of a sudden, boom, he'd you know, rear back and, and hit me. And I just remember crying and just weeping as I'm holding him and having the strength to hold him was alone exhausting. But now my emotions are overtaking me too. And I'm just losing it, but I have to keep holding. And our therapists, um, Amy and Shannon, were sitting there and they were crying too. And Amy and Shannon both looked at me and they said, we're here with you. We're here. God is here. You're doing a good job, mom. Keep going. Keep holding on. Just keep holding on. It'll get better soon. I remember that. And, you know, there are times when, you know, I don't have to do that anymore like that. There are times when we've had to climb on top of him to help him calm down on his bed under a weighted blanket. Um, but I've not had to, you know, hold him like that now that he's now that he's older. And I definitely couldn't. You know, I physically couldn't now, especially now that he's working out. But I remember that <laughs> in those times, in the hard times when I'm just really struggling to hold it together. I'm struggling with him. I'm struggling against his will and against my will and my flesh. And, and I'm just, you know, and I'm crying on the inside or outside. And I'm just remembering God is with me. He's here with me in this. He's here with you, mom or dad. He's there with you in in all of those hard times. And the presence of the Lord is truly just so comforting. And it, it doesn't it doesn't make everything go away. It doesn't, you know, it, I still had to wait it out. I still had to wait for the meltdown to to cease and for his body to finally relax. And then I could go pull myself together and splash some cold water on my face. But I think that we need to remember that God is with us in it, you know, and that that's part of the aching joy, you know, that we're, we're aching, we're hurting, and God is there with us. He's there with us through the whole thing. Yes, absolutely. Oh, and what would you say, what is the most important piece of encouragement you could offer someone who's parenting a child with severe autism, you know, of, of any age, what, what is the most important piece of encouragement you could give? Think carefully. Um, <laughs> yeah, I know. I'm like, man, I've answered this question in a couple of different ways before, I think. But to, to me, it's this, you're not on a schedule anymore. So don't put yourself or in your, your child on a timetable. This child um, is a gift and this child has, has a lot of, uh, challenges. There's no question about it, but this child is a gift and this child will progress in his or her own timing and own way. So mm -hmm. just throw away the calendars, uh, the, the developmental stuff. It, it, it's okay. Uh, we don't have to worry about timetables anymore. Um, and right. let's just take it a day at a time from here on out. And last question, what special hope do you have to share? with our listeners and our listeners are parents, ministry leaders, 
you know, there are people who live this life daily. There are people who are trying to understand this life. But what is the special hope that you have in your own life that you can share? Um, you know, it, it's it's this. Your your life isn't over. It's just because your initial um, your your initial expectations haven't been met. That doesn't mean your life is over. There's still so much beauty to be found on this journey that you're on. And I know that's hard to believe in the beginning, um, but I promise you, there are beautiful things along the way, and you're going to find joy that you never expected. You're going to find it in unexpected places. Um, you're going to find it uh, from unexpected sources. Uh, you're going to find some things that, that you thought might bring you envy and, and turn those into celebration as you learn to celebrate other people's victories. You're, you're going to find new sources of life that you didn't know existed. So that's my encouragement is, is, is this. And that's my hope for this book is that people will be able to take what they think is a lost situation. And they think, man, I'm never going to be able to have real life because it's not going to match this. Um, it, they'll, they'll take, they'll go from there to be, to, to, to learning to embrace the mystery and embrace the joy of being on a journey with new and unexpected sources of refreshment and celebration. Hmm. Um, I'd like to read um, a segment out of your book from the chapter, It's Not All Rubble, just to leave our listeners with this, with this last piece of hope. And this just this made me cry when, when I read it and I just, uh, which that's not saying much. There's a lot of things that make me cry, but <laughs> it's truly beautiful. Um, you say, but as a child of God and a follower of Jesus, you are forbidden one thing. You are not allowed to give up hope. I understand the tension. What I'm asking of you is not easy to let go and to keep holding on at the same time to surrender your deepest longings while trusting that an invisible guide might breathe some life into them still. But hope is not yours to kill. It never was. Hope is a gift for you to hold, not to control. You hold only the end of a vine stretching heavenward, and you must tend it even in the winter months. You must keep it alive. These are hard things. It would be far easier to smother the cries of our hearts. There would be less pain that way. But the moment we cut ourselves off from the possibility of sorrow, we also cut ourselves off from laughter. We cannot numb only one side of our hearts. There is a way forward on this journey, and it is narrow. It requires that we refuse protective measures and remain vulnerable. We must keep our hearts open to disappointment and surprise. We must continue to risk heartbreak. If there were only weeping, I would have despaired. I would have allowed my new, safe fantasies to play on forever. Fortunately, I discovered that my culture was wrong. Joy could be every bit as tangible as aching, and I was finally about to find it. And you're going to have to read part two of the book, Aching Joy, to find out where he found that joy. So, Jason, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been wonderful to talk with you about your book, and just you have so many different things that we could tease out. So thank you so very much for, for joining us and, and talking with us more about this. If you'd like to connect with Jason, you can find him on his website at jasonhaig.com and on social media. Find him on Facebook and Instagram at Jason Haig Writer and on Twitter at Jason Haig. And you spell that J-A-S-O-N-H-A-G-U-E. Don't forget to check out his book, Aching Joy, on Amazon and on his website as well. All of these links will be made available in today's show notes, so please check those out. I'm your host, Sarah Brody, and this is A Special Hope. You can find our website at hopeinautism.com slash Podcast. We're also on Facebook and Instagram at Podcast, and on Twitter at Pod. You can also email me at Podcast at hopeinautism.com. I'd love to connect with you on social media and hear your comments. If you're enjoying listening to A Special Hope, I would greatly appreciate it if you could share the love by rating and reviewing on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It goes a long way towards helping others find hope and encouragement in the special needs journey. Thank you so much for listening today. Have a great week. Uh, where are you in, in Kentucky? I am in Somerset, Kentucky. If you know where Louisville, Kentucky is... We're about two and a half hours south of that. 
So most people know yeah, of yeah. Louisville, even if they don't know where right. it is. It's on the border of Indiana, actually. Louisville is. Okay. See, I, I lived in Kentucky until I was three. Um, and I, I was, I, I remember almost nothing except like my bunk bed and a lake. And that's about it. Oh, also a John Deere, a John Deere tractor. Cause if they, you know, my family tells me that I, I wanted to, you know, I always played on this tractor. And so they, you know, you'd think when you say, Jason, what do you want to be when you grow up? I would say a farmer, but apparently my big response was I want to be a tractor. <laughs> so you didn't want to drive a tractor. You wanted to, I, I wanted be... to be a tractor. A tractor. Wow. Yeah. Hashtag yeah. goals, man. Hashtag goals. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I know. And like looking at that, I mean, I have to say, I don't like to say things like this, but I have to say I'm kind of a failure. I did not, I didn't even grow up to be a lawnmower. You know what yeah. I mean? <laughs> you were nowhere close to becoming, no, much no. less a John Deere. You know, of all the tractors, know. you know, John know. Deere, that's the right. one to shoot for. But I mean, you weren't no. even... I wish I knew more brands of tractors. You weren't even. Yeah, is it that's Peterbilt? about all I got to. I, I know they do trucks. I don't know if they do tractors. Yeah, trucks. I, see, I just remember from the Cars movie, you know, because uh, Lightning oh, McQueen oh, is yeah. going after Mac. He's like, Mac, Mac, He's, Mac. I'm no Mac. I'm a Peterbilt. I'm, I'm Peterbilt. <laughs> yeah, you know, um, we we probably could have long discussions on on the Cars trilogy. Oh my gosh. Um, Samuel apparently yeah. hates the third one. He's he doesn't like the third one. He's like, no, that's not even that's not even in his book. So, uh, what, what like about the, the second one? Uh, I think he likes the second one. He likes the second one, but the third one to him is just a disaster. Apparently, we really oh, like the okay. third one, but I think that when you're parents and you're older and you watch Pixar movies, it wrecks you in a whole different kind of way than it will, yes, it you know, yes. for a for a nine year old. Um, so although he's 13 now, but, um, no, we right. lived cars for, oh, I don't know, like 10 years. It feels like it was, it was at least yeah. five, seven years. It was a long time. Cars were, and he had to get a brand new one. You know, we'd go to target and stupid target on their clearance aisles, you know, $3 for, for right. a new car. And of course, if you buy one for the one kid, you got to, you know, you got to get one for the other two. Sometimes, not always, but uh, but yeah. we would buy the exact same. Well, actually, Kyle's parents would buy the boys, all three of them, the exact same car. And Samuel could look at yes. each one and say, that one's Josh's or, you know, that one's Benjamin's. This one's mine. He knew the difference between the exact same car. He just yeah. he just knew. He just did. The, ama the amount of attention our kids like can oh. give. To the things that love is, is staggering. <laughs> yes. Like if only we had that much focus in the things that we do in our lives, how much more successful could we possibly be? Um, I know. I would probably be a John Deere if I could. I probably would. <laughs> yeah, uh, we're going to have to tweet that to John Deere. Um, if I could be a John Deere. <laughs> Hashtag if I could be any tractor. I don't know. Right.